0: John, being back in Memphis must uh, revive some old memories for you. Do you ever get lonesome for those 60-cent plate lunches at Taylor's
1: Restaurant next to Sun Records? (laughs) Yeah, I hadn't thought about that in a long time. But we did have some good lunches there at Taylor's Restaurant. I had fun today driving around Memphis again.
0: Well, Memphis has played a big part in your life, hasn't it?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: John, um... In your Air Force days, you were a communications technician, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's a great story about uh, those days and how they led to one of your big hits, I Walked the Line. Would you tell us how that happened?
1: Yeah, I had myself a new tape recorder, a very inexpensive tape recorder it was, and while I was working one day, a friend of mine was fooling around with a tape recorder with a guitar, just playing chords. This is what I found out later on. Yeah. One day I came down from work and turned on my tape recorder and there was the strangest sound that I had ever heard. And it sounded like, uh, well, it really sounded like an organ. Yeah. And the chords were going yeah. Well, I fooled with that for months, playing that sound over and over and over, never could figure out what it was. Yeah. And finally, I turned the tape around and played it, and it was a friend of mine that had been fooling around with my tape recorder while I was at work with a guitar, and the and the the weird sound that I'd heard was a guitar playing backwards on the tape recorder, <laughs> and I never forgot I never forgot those um, those notes that sound of that guitar, yeah. and that was the inspiration for the sound when I walked the line. Yeah.
0: Your, your accompaniment is always so unusual. You have such a distinctive style. How did that uh, Chuck-a-Boom sound originate?
1: Well, that came naturally with a Tennessee II, it was. Marshall Grant yeah. and Luther Perkins. Whatever sound we had, it was natural. It was electric guitar. And a bass fiddle Marshall played with a slapback on it. It yeah. made it sound like it was two different instruments. Yeah. He gave a drum effect with that bass the way he played it. Mm-hmm. Still plays it that way.
0: And Marshall and Luther uh, were two Memphians that that you met mm-hmm. when you came here to Keegan's School. Yeah, I
1: met them at Automobile Sales Company down on Union. They were mechanics. Right. They? And
0: how did you how did you get into uh, recording?
1: Well, Sun Records was at uh, 706 Union Avenue, yeah. and uh, they were doing fairly well. Sun had not. Didn't have national distribution at that time, but they were getting pretty hot, getting pretty big, and important. Kid named Presley, Presley, that was doing all right for himself, and uh, a couple of other people.
0: One named Carl Perkins.
1: Carl Perkins, yeah. And um, since it was the closest record company, the only one I knew about, uh, I called Sam Phillips and asked for an audition, and. I believe it was two or three times that it was turned down. Finally, he said he would listen. And after going back two or three, four times over a period of six months, we finally, the Tennessee Two and I, got a song called Hey Poor to record it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, <clears throat> at the same time, we recorded Folsom Prison Blues, which I'd written when I was in I Air think Force. a lot of
0: people don't realize how far back that song goes. Because, it of does. course, its biggest hit came uh, in 68, wasn't it? When yeah, you did that, 68.
1: That album. The first time was in, in, I wrote it in 1953
0: mm-hmm. when I was in the Air Force. Why Folsom? Uh, did you have any uh,
1: connections with I Folsom? I saw a movie, I got a good imagination sometimes. I saw a movie called Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison. That I remember
0: me. that movie. I review movies and
1: I, I remember yeah. a lot of those old things. That was the movie that inspired that song. Yeah.
0: Where have some of your other songs come from? I know a number I must have come out of actual experience as well as imagination. I'm thinking of Five Feet High and Rising. Wasn't there some uh, yeah, that experience was, in your that
1: life? old Muddy Miss Sipper flo- flooded in uh, 1937, winter of 37, 38. Yeah, that was a big one. That was one time it flooded. Of course, all the old people remember the winter of 27 <laughs> yeah. as well when it flooded. But the Flood of 37 was when I was writing about in Five Feet High and Rising. Mm -hmm. A lot of songs came out of my uh, childhood remembrances or experiences. Picking time told about life on the small cotton farm as I knew it with the wagon and mules. Over in Dias. In Dias, Arkansas. Um, Well, other songs that uh, weren't quite so popular that uh, was about life as I knew it as a child. John, did uh,
0: which came first in your in your life, uh, music or words? Uh, you write both, but uh, did you do any writing before you took up guitar?
1: Any poems? Oh yeah, poems yeah, I wrote or? when I was a kid. Did you write? I wrote poetry when I was a kid, and um, I made up tunes as a kid too. I guess the tunes and the words came at the same time, because that's how I remember coming in the first place. You know, I yeah. I was always a music fan, especially a country gospel music fan. Mm-hmm. I remember days here I would listen to the Memphis stations, this station and other stations mm-hmm. when I was a kid, to the country music programs, the gospel music programs. And I'd listen every chance, you know, like when I'd come in from the fields from mm-hmm. picking cotton or chopping cotton, I'd have that radio on if we had a battery. Yeah. I've had various favorite artists through the years. Uh, Jimmy Rogers, the Carter family. Of course, I was very young when the, when uh, Jimmy Rogers was popular. Mm-hmm. I was born in 32 and he died in 33. Yeah. <clears throat> of course, the Carter family started recording before I was born. Mm-hmm. In 1927, they were recording. And, um, but I remember them when I was a little bitty boy and I remember People here in Memphis when I was a small boy, like Gene Steele, um, the Light Crust Doughboys. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and the Lonesome Valley Trio I remember listening to when I was 14 or 15 years old. That was Smiley and Eddie Hill and Iron Charlie, the Lubin Brothers. <laughs> right. Oh, at 1.15 <laughs> on the radio, they came on with uh, the Lonesome Valley ke- Trio came on singing those hymns that I'm still singing. Yeah.
0: Weren't you on radio, you and, uh, and Marshall and Luther, for, for a while? For then? just a little
1: while, not very much.
0: Was that when you were working for Home Equipment Company? Right.
1: hmm We had a 15-minute program on WHH, I mean on KWE, I mean, back then. West Memphis. Yeah, yeah, right. We had a 15-minute program. I don't think anybody ever heard me back then, though. <laughs> I don't think anybody was out there listening to me then. <laughs> They didn't keep those cards and letters rolling uh, in. That was before I had a first record out, and nobody ever heard of me, and nobody really did want to hear of me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I tell you, a man that that can sell, what was it, six and a half million records in one year alone, 1969, has got somebody out there listening now.
1: Well, I hope so, yeah. I really have enjoyed the years in in this uh, music business from... The beginning, the lean years, right up to now, I'm enjoying it more now than I ever did in my life. I think I'm more alive than I've ever been in my life, and I really am enjoying it more. Well, I'm so happy in our in our family life and so thankful for all the good things that have been handed to June and I. Yeah, We've been blessed with a little son that's in perfect health. Of course, that's the important thing. Yeah, right? sure it sure is. John, there's, there's a book
0: out now called Winners Got Scars Too, The Life and Legends of Johnny Cash, just out, I might say, by Christopher S. Wren. And there's a, there's a poem in there. I don't know if you've set it to music or not or if you intend to, mm-hmm. but the, uh, the poem really impressed me, and I'd like to read a couple of lines of it. Could there be ruined regions of the mind where reason doesn't reach to draw the line, where the brain was pounded by some drug Time after time until a hole was finally dug. And how can you know just where you'll find the hole, and how can you know what that hole does to your soul? Yeah. A man that, that can write a poem like that must have really been through something.
1: Well, I was calling it the way I was seeing it, Edwin, when I wrote those lines about drugs for six or seven years off and on. I pounded my, my brain with... Uh, Amphetamines, barbiturates, and um, I don't feel like there was any damage. I don't know. I don't believe there was. But um, drugs are such an evil thing. There's anything unnatural, is wrong. Anything that you do to your body, or your, or your, mind, unnaturally is wrong. And um, I did so much unnatural stuff to my head, for so long that. Once or twice, I'd wondered if, uh, if it had affected my mind or my soul or my psyche. Really permanent damage. But um, my life is pretty well straightened out. I'm very happy, and I'm very close to God now. And um, I feel like He brought me through it just fine.
0: Well, a lot of people have uh, have been on to drugs, but not many have been on and come off the way you have. So
1: it's almost impossible to to be hooked, so to speak, on on drugs. And there are so many, like amphetamines, you, you don't exactly get hooked and addicted to, but you get habituated to, yeah. which is almost as bad or maybe worse in some instances. Anything that you can get a, well, cigarettes. There, there couldn't be any harder or stronger addiction than you get to to nicotines. Yeah, cigarettes always, is the hardest thing I ever quit. Really I quit cigarettes 16 world. months ago, and that was, Um, some of those drugs were a breeze compared to nicotine (laughs) but it was all tough to get off of and it was all unnatural things that I was doing to myself with the drugs and the cigarettes and I'm not telling everybody that uh, cigarettes are all that bad for them, my dad has been smoking since he's 12 and he's 74 right now but uh, he'll tell you they hurt him of course they don't hurt him as bad as they were hurting me they were killing me, I had to quit and some people, they hurt a lot worse than others. But the drugs, they kill anybody. Was there, a,
0: was there a moment, John, when you said to yourself, I've got to stop, or or was it a cumulative thing? Accumulative
1: things? There were many moments that I said that to myself, but I guess there was only one time that I really meant it, and that's when I did it. Quitting something is not saying it, it's doing it. Mm. And it uh, boiled down to that, that, All the promises I made to myself and all those people that I love so much and love me so that were So close to me. It didn't mean a thing in the world until I finally did it And when you did it, it was you that had to do it no matter how much help you you had Right.
0: It was between me and me and God to do it And now you've come out of it and and gone on to a bigger success than you've ever had before as successful as you were before Thank you the television You've got a
1: movie coming out, don't you? John? Well, well, I have one out, the, the Western, the a yeah. gunfight. Yeah. And I'm doing a film in Israel in November called... Are you? I'm narrating a film called In the Footsteps of Jesus. Mm-hmm. A documentary on the life of Jesus, the dramatization on the life of Jesus. I'll be narrating it and singing in it. And I uh, hope, uh, uh, hope to tell the story of Jesus as it is. Yeah.
0: A gunfight had some unusual financial backing, didn't it?
1: Yeah, the Hicarilla Apaches. See what happened? The government gave them out of that old dried-up desert land out there, and they struck oil on it and made themselves (laughs) rich, and they went into the financing (laughs) business. They financed this picture, and they want to finance another one now. Although I don't, I haven't seen any other movie scripts that I'm really in. Has this in. one been out long enough to tell how it's going to do for? It's them. done very well. They've got. It their, hasn't played many. They've got yet. their investment back already. Well, that's great. Mm. Do you like making films? I enjoyed that one. I doubt if I'll do very many movies though. Mm-hmm. Performing and the music is my first love. And you prefer the live shows to television.
0: I surely do. In spite of the, uh, the strain and the, and the, uh, the terrible, uh, I should think, monotony of, of road travel.
1: Well, there's not the monotony and the strain in one night stands that there is in, in weekly television, as really? far as I'm concerned. I mean, when I go on stage out here in Memphis, it's real, see. they see seeing me for what I am, and I can communicate with the people I believe and i love to perform for them i love to do the things that i think they might enjoy hearing and there's nothing between me and those people out there in the concert there's a there's not only that screen and that tube between me and them on television but there's uh, there's network uh people there's television people that edit songs and uh, make me do it over three or four times if i make a mistake until i lose my heart in a lot of it and the people watching the television show can sense it when I'm when I don't really feel like I'm you know that I'm feeling what I'm doing the people out there know it you can't fool it yeah. can't fool the people let me ask you this I interviewed
0: Artur Rubenstein a few months ago and one of the questions we talked about was this phenomenon of a person sitting in an audience and all of a sudden in the middle of a, of a musical number getting real prickles down the back of his spine you know and uh, I asked Rubenstein if when the audience was feeling that if he felt it too, yeah, right. and he said, you bet your life, he said, That's what uh, I'm talking about. if they're feeling it, then I'm feeling it twice as much. That's do you, what I'm do you feel about. that sort of
1: thing? That's exactly what I'm talking about. And there's where, all, there's where it's important for me as a performer to feel that with my audience on stage. If I'm doing a song like Sunday Morning Coming Down, I can see the expression on just a few faces and know what the whole audience is feeling, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of the spiritual songs I do especially, I can see when the people's faces brighten up, their eyes light up, some of them start clapping hands. I know that that we are sharing that song. It's a question of sharing what I'm doing with the audience, giving to them and receiving back the appreciation from them. That's where it's at for me. Performing is communicating, and what you're talking about, those little shivers that the audience get up and down their spine, I'm communicating with them when, I'm, when they get that feeling. Uh, John, one of the uh, uh,
0: byproducts of your uh, latest success uh, seems to be uh, an opportunity for you to get involved in causes that, I, that you may have uh, felt strongly about before. but maybe didn't have quite the opportunity to, uh, to work on that you have now. I know Indians is one thing, uh, prisons is another. Uh, are there any other uh, big issues
1: that you feel strongly about and want to do something about? Well, I try not to get involved in too many issues, but uh, I work a lot with children and uh, with the mentally ill. I'm working uh, with a, a place in, in Nashville called Walden House which is a home for autistic children, and June and I support that. In the month of November, after we came come back from the Holy Land, we're playing a show for uh, at East Tennessee Mental Hospital, and we're also doing a show for the Nashville Metro Police Department for their uh, widow's pension and their welfare fund. Mm-hmm. We do um, uh, quite a variety of charity work, June and I do.
0: A lot of performers uh, over the years have been quoted as saying that they felt performers should stay out of public issues. Uh, Others say they should get into it. Uh, Do you have a a feeling about that? I'm thinking now more political issues.
1: Well, I try to stay out of politics as best I can. I'm dragged into them sometimes. I'd rather not be. Involved in politics, or rather, not. Uh, I certainly don't uh, I try not to endorse any political candidates. Um, I shook hands with Tex Ritter and uh, told him I hope he'd win, and they took pictures of that and published it. <laughs> but that was all right because he's a friend of mine. But uh, as far as the platform, I didn't really know much about it, you know. And uh I just don't choose size and political issues. A lot of people have
0: tried to pigeonhole you as a conservative or as a liberal I don't know or what that means. Well, you know, I came across a good definition of a liberal recently. It's the only really true definition that I've ever heard. And it said a liberal is one who realizes that he can be wrong <laughs> and is willing to change his mind.
1: I think that might be me, then. I hope so.
0: <laughs> well, I remember reading uh, that uh, you once said don't tell me what I believe in unless you talk to me today.
1: Well, yeah, I've changed my mind about a lot of things as the times change because uh, change is the whole process of life and change is the whole process of growth. And uh, times change, people change. The way of life changes, the lifestyles change. you got to change with them.
0: One thing that's changed over the years is the is the name of the kind of music you play. And uh, yet it seems to me the music remains essentially the same. It's Mm -hmm. been hillbilly and rockabilly and country and western, Mm -hmm. and plain country. What do you think the future of your kind of music is?
1: I don't know. I don't think they'll ever really find a bag to keep me in. If that's, uh, they've been looking for a bag to put me in so they could say, Johnny Cash is this over here, and that's it. But sometimes I have a way of breaking out of those boundaries. I don't know. I think there will always be good country music. And when I say country music, I'm just using one of the names. To me, uh, country music is the music of the people, the songs of the, usually of the working class of people, of their songs of their work, or of their home life, or of their love life. A lot of times it's uh, about mother, about country, but it's usually of the culture of the, well, maybe the lower middle class, working class. What is
0: there about country music that makes performers also composers? I don't know of any other, well, rock is pretty much that way, but uh, the old-time
1: pop singers uh, never wrote their own material. Well, country music's got something that uh, other kinds of music don't, don't have, except for maybe blues. Country artists write a lot of their songs because it's, uh, it goes back to the fact that they feel what they do. Like we were talking about those people out there, know when you're feeling what you're doing and believe in it. Well, they naturally uh, write a lot of stuff that they perform because that's the way they feel it. They say it the way they feel it. It's a lot like the old medieval minstrels and troubadours who yes, traveled around. Right. When they would go into a town and for a night's uh, bed and board, they would write a song for the family. And write about them, write about the people, you know, about their life. Or write them a story about something that would be interesting for them and leave it with them. When you write a song, does it just come to you? Uh, There's no set pattern, none whatsoever. Sometime, uh, about a year ago... Somebody asked me, why do you always dress in black and my answer to him was, do you wonder why I always dress in black? Uh, and there's something rhythmic about the words, you know, yeah. and that was the beginning of that song It just happens different ways. Yeah
0: Some of your songs, I guess you would call uh, Message
1: songs like what is truth for example. Yeah, I guess so. There are those who say that messages should be sent by a telegraph yeah. and I agree with them for the most part But sometimes something needs to be said in a song uh, My songs uh, a lot of them are a part of me and I can't help but s- putting into lyric form how I feel about a lot of things just like the poem that you read about the yeah. drugs That was something I was thinking about and I just put it down on paper you think that will ever be a song? No, I don't think so. It was just an idea I had, mm-hmm. just uh, something I was wondering about at the time. But sometimes I put my thoughts and a part of me, so to speak, down on down on paper, yeah. in lyric. One of your, I think, finest accomplishments
0: on the personal level uh, was helping uh, Glenn Shirley, who's traveling with you now, um, <coughs> He was in your audience at Folsom Prison, and somebody gave you a song that he had written, mm-hmm. and uh, you liked the song and did it. Mm-hmm. That must be awfully gratifying to uh, to be able to help a person directly that way. Uh, of course, you've got a medical research center going in uh, in Nashville, that I'm sure is gratifying too. But there must be a stronger personal feeling in helping somebody like Glenn.
1: Yeah, there really is. Uh... I was in North Carolina this last week at Gardner-Webb University. I was given a doctorate in, humanitar- in Humanities Honorary Degree. And Glenn Shirley was up there on the front row. And I really realized the full impact of the good that has come to Glenn Shirley's life. When I saw him sitting there on the front row with that thing honoring me, all dressed up in that nice new black suit and that white shirt and white tie. He looked like a million dollars, and for 13 years, he never wore anything but the prison denim. Yeah, what a contrast in,
0: between seeing him sitting on yeah. the front row as he did there mm-hmm. in Folsom Prison, and then at this. Yeah, I
1: thought about that very thing, about how frail and scared he looked on the front row there at Folsom, and how nice he looked last week up there, and what, how much good, just a little help from somebody who's done that man, now, there are men that belong in prison, and there are men that need to to be put away for their crimes. They need to, we need society; the man on the street needs to be safe from some of those people. But there are some of those people in those prisons that need our help, that that deserve help. Yeah, that we're a victim of ti- of the times, or a victim of circumstances. And uh, we build prisons, and by that we show that we're obligating ourselves to. To have a place for them and to rehabilitate them, so sometimes somebody needs to care for some of them.
0: Uh, one of your managers back some years ago uh, is quoted in this book about you, is, his name is Stu Carnall, mm-hmm. and uh, he's quoted as saying uh, about you that you you fooled a lot of people, that uh, they thought you were, uh, you impressed a lot of people sometimes as being uh, a bumpkin or something of that sort, and He said, uh, uh, John was always rural, but he was never a clod. And I love that that summation of you.
1: Well, you know, I don't know the reason (laughs) (laughs) for uh, the way I acted a lot of times. And it's been a long time since I tried to make excuses for it, but... uh, well, I those. just tried to enjoy life on the road, and sometimes the per- did, I pull some pretty wild things on some of those tours.
0: You sure did, from reading I'm afraid so.
1: <laughs> Marshall Grant did, too. I think Marshall should autograph copies of that <laughs> book instead of me.
0: One year you figured up you did 290 one-night stands mm-hmm. in a year.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that a problem for you now? That must have been one thing that led to the, to the amphetamines, to keep going at yeah. that kind of pace. <clears throat> well,
1: we don't work nearly that many dates now. Uh, and our, our traveling, our touring is much more organized than it was. Uh, we play uh, mostly the bigger auditoriums and uh, buildings in the country now. And uh, we're pretty straight in our life.